One of the things that we try as pastors, as leaders in the church, one of the things that we try to do is we try to get our family, our community, to think biblically. If you want to know what pastors do in leading and shepherding, one of the things we do in the 21st century is try to get our community to think biblically. Why do we want to do that? Because there's another way of thinking out there. In the secular world, there is a way of thinking about life and stuff and things that's totally diametrically opposed to the way the Christian man or woman would think. And what we attempt to do is going into the word of God, try to encourage us to grab hold of the word of God and let the word of God be the guide for us in the 21st century. Regardless of where your background is, where you're from, what your education is, what your, what your social status, that the word of God becomes that peace that allows you to navigate this world in a way that will bring glory to God. There's two things that every Christian should pretty much have down pretty, pretty solid about God. There's a lot of other stuff about God, but these two things are key. That is that, one, God is sovereign. If you do not believe that God is sovereign, then you are not a theist. You're more than likely an atheist. Because part of theism, part of theist thinking is that God is sovereign. That means that God rules. He's over all things. The second thing is that God loves us. Loves us in a way that we'll never fully understand. The closest we can get to understanding it is looking at his actions, looking at what he has done for us. And that is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God has given us his son in a way to demonstrate his love for us. God is sovereign. And then God Love is incredible. And it's the latter part that I want to zero in on this morning as we look at a famous psalm, Psalm 51, David's psalm in the Bible. Let us pray. Oh God, only you know And we come and we ask, oh God, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that we would fully grasp that you are the sovereign over all things. That you, oh God, are good God and that your love, your love, God, is eternal. Your love, God, we can't fathom its total capacity in our finite capacity as humankind. But God, you know. Help us now as we navigate your word to understand part of what that means that you love us. 
In Jesus' precious and matchless name. The church of God said amen. The church of God said amen. 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 We've been in a series where we've been, uh, we just started a series entitled, When Failure is Not the Final Word. And what we're attempting to do in, in, in this series is to, to, to educate you, instruct you, encourage you, build you up in your understanding about what it means to be a Christian, a child of God, a person that going along in life, doing everything that Christians do, doing everything that you would do, and, and, and all of a sudden you find out that something is wrong, something doesn't quite work. And you may find yourself in in a situation where you do something you should not have done or you fail to do something that you should have done. But sooner or later, if you're living long enough as a Christian, you're not going to always be what you are supposed to be for the glory of God. Nowhere is that more evident than we see in the story about David, one of the most famous people in the scriptures. We hear the story about David from when he was a little kid, when he comes out as a shepherd boy, he's chosen that he is the one when Saul fails. In fact, God goes even further and says that, that, that he, he, he's a man after my own heart. This is God speaking. The same David would go up against Goliath. And defeat Goliath. The same David has numerous stories where he is the hero. He is the guy. He is the man that has done everything in terms of warrior, leader, shepherd. He is the one. Most of the Psalms have been written by him. A lot of the Psalms have been written. And and, and we find that this same David, there is one story that kind of bugs us. That kind of puts a very human face on a person that would almost seem superhuman. And that is when we get to the story in the, that's recorded in the scriptures when David fails. To get to Psalm 51, you have to go back a bit. And I, I, I want to go back and just kind of refresh your memory because Psalm 51 is actually the result of an earlier event that had happened in David's life where he failed in terms of uh, his his walk with the Lord. Now, granted that the Lord said that here's a man after my own heart. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. First Samuel tells us. Then how is it that we get to second Samuel, the 11th chapter, and we hear this story about David And it starts off kind of weird because it it starts off saying in in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David. And immediately, you know, something is wrong because David is king and he has not gone out with his men to battle. David sent Joab And his servants with him, all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
And it happened one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and that woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and once said, is not that Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and she lay with, he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and a woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Our hero suddenly has taken a fall. How is it that our hero suddenly has found himself compromised as king? The story doesn't stop there. And most of you know the story. David feels that he's got to do something now to cover his tracks. And so he does what any broken person would do. Try to fix themselves and cover themselves. And so immediately he says, okay, let me figure this out. Let me send for Uriah, have Uriah come back home from the battlefield and have Uriah be with his wife long enough so that it would, if he's with his wife, then if the baby is born, then, you know, it's his baby. And I get to cover my tracks and nobody will ever know what I did. But something backfires because Uriah comes in from the battle and he is so committed to his men out there on the battlefield. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And he says, I, how, how can I do this? How, I, I, I. So he refuses to be with his wife in comfort and he sleeps apart from her. So now David's got a dilemma. He's king. He's got this dilemma. He's got to figure out what to do. Okay, so, okay, uh, What we'll do is we'll send Uriah back to the battlefield, but we'll make sure this time that he's put right on the front, right out there in the heartbeat of the battle. And as you can guess, you already know the story. Uriah is killed. And so David figures he's gotten away with it. He takes Bathsheba as one of his wives, and he's good to go now. He thinks he's gotten away, but the story doesn't stop because Nathan comes to David. He says, there's a a situation you need to think about. And Nathan Nathan addresses the situation with him. And here's the words of Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city and one was rich, one the other was poor. The rich man had a very small flock, very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb and which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew up, grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsels and drink his cup from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to a rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for, uh, for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. David says, who, who would dare do such a thing? That's horrible, terrible. 
That man ought to be killed. And Nathan, as the Lord is speaking through him, you're the one. You're the man. You're the man, David. And when he realizes that God's got him nailed, he begins his confession because he recognizes that you can't hide from a sovereign God. Please hear me, church. You cannot hide from a sovereign God. Hear the words of his plea, and he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, along with Psalm 32, written about the same time. And it's called, they're, they're called the uh, Psalms of Penitence because there's a sense that, 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 that there's a crying out to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret, in, in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then he goes on to talk about don't hide your face. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, that famous part. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. The point I'm going to be making today, and you're going to hear me say this more than once this morning. Failure is not final if we choose to draw near to God through a confessional, authentic faith with a broken and contrite heart. Failure is not final if we choose to draw near to God through a confessional, authentic faith with a broken and contrite heart. What are you saying, Pastor? What I'm saying this morning is simply this. Regardless of what you have done or what you have not yet done, because some of you may be sitting there and say, well, I, 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 I would never do anything so bad. Keep living. Sooner or later, all of us will misstep some kind of way. And when we do, we need to make sure that we are thinking biblically. That is, that we understand that God loves us and cares for us so much And only wants us to come clean with him. That is, come before him, draw into him with an authentic faith and a heart that says, God, I I need you. I can't do this. I can't clean my act up without you. Failure is not final 
if we choose to draw near to God through a confessional, authentic faith with a broken and contrite heart. And why a broken and contrite heart? Because one of the things that David is going to tell us, I'm going to look at just these first few verses here in Psalm 51 because I think it's fundamental, it's key to understanding a very important piece about our God. And that is when Lamentations says in the third chapter of Lamentations, when it speaks of his mercies are new every day, there's a sense that our God already knows, he already knows, he knows us, and he's already covered us. David didn't have the pleasure of having Jesus Christ at that point, but there's something interesting that I discovered in this passage, and I'll bring it up a little bit later. It has to do with something Paul, Paul makes a comment from the psalmist in chapter 3 of Romans, and we'll go back to that. The penitential psalms, the penitential psalms are basically just psalms that just uh, remind us of no matter what we've done, God wants to forgive us and all of our sins. David didn't have Christ as we do, but we have the honor of knowing Jesus Christ personally. The heading in this particular piece says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan spoke to him and said that, hey, you had gone into Bathsheba and you are guilty. One could also call this psalm a prayer for individuals in distress. The question on the table this morning, and I mentioned it to the kids, can a righteous God restore to fellowship a person who has experienced the worst kind of failure? Can a righteous God restore to fellowship a person who has experienced the worst kind of failure? There's a guy, many of you know this story. Uh, In 2015, a young man by the name of Dylan Roof, Charleston, South Carolina, predominantly African-American church. They were having Bible study. He came to the door. They welcomed him in for Bible study. He sat down with them. They loved him, wrapped their arms around him, gave him scriptures that they were reading. And when they went into prayer, he stood up and pulled out a Glock, a gun, and killed nine people in the Bible study. A jury deliberated for about three hours just recently before returning the decision. Of course, you already know that they, 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 they basically gave him the death sentence. But what was interesting about his story, he served as his own attorney during the whole trial. And during the sentencing, when you would have an opportunity to say something to the family, say something in front of the judge, express remorse, he basically never asked for forgiveness or mercy from the court or gave an explanation for the massacre. I believe that our God is big enough such that if he had 
given his life over to God in a very authentic way. And if he had expressed remorse and asked for forgiveness, that he would have been forgiven. Now somebody is sitting here saying, but what about the consequences? There are consequences behind sin. So even though we're going to find that, even though David, in his situation, God said, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to take your life. There were consequences. The baby that was born from Bathsheba, that baby died. So you might say, well, God is, boy, that is really rough. You know, how could God do that? I mean, that's, God, God is sovereign. And we don't see the whole picture. We only see just a small piece. He knows the whole story. Failure is not final if we choose to draw near to God through a confessional and authentic faith with, broken, with a broken and contrite heart. The key piece in this text, in this narrative, is that an innocent man is dead, his wife violated by a renowned leader, the baby dies, and the Lord says in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. And the first thing I'm thinking is that how, how could you put away his sin? I know in scriptures, Lord, that, that there's things that people have done less than that, much less, and you have taken their life. And the answer came back, and I, I stumbled across this, to be honest with you, because I was looking at the quote that's in the middle of that chapter. Verse 4 and verse 51, and uh, Psalm 51, verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Watch this so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What's interesting is Paul, in, his, in the third chapter of Romans, quotes the same thing. Watch this, chapter 3 in Romans. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and the context of it is this, let me go back a little bit, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Paul is making an argument about whether or not it, it buys you anything if you're a Jew, if you, if you, it, it doesn't buy you anything. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and everyone be a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your, our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And essentially what, what Paul is arguing here is that God, God had already, already in advance provided for David. He had already provided. There was, a, there was a sense that even though Jesus Christ was not there and, 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 this, and David didn't know Christ, God had already covered. So when you read in there, when, when God says, when, he, when, the, when uh, the psalmist says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He calls on God's mercy because he knows, according to Exodus 34, 6, he knows that that is who God is. God's mercy. God is compassionate. He's the ever-loving God. And so he invokes that piece of God's character. In other words, God, I'm not deserving of anything, but you are the merciful God. I call on that mercy. Have mercy means to have gracious pity. It's a heartfelt response when you have something that that, that you're requesting. It's God's loving kindness, his steadfast love all throughout the, the, the Psalms, you hear something about the steadfast love of God, his loving kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. That is God. God cannot be anything other than his loving nature, his self, because that's who he is. His tender mercies in some ways. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Moses in Exodus 34, 6, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, that that famous hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. God is immutable. He is the changeless one. He is consistent God. Sovereign, consistent God. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. David knows he doesn't deserve forgiveness. So he calls on God's character of mercy. He asks for renewal, purity, and pardon. That's why he says, blot out my transgressions. Failure is not final if we choose to draw near to God through a confessional, authentic faith with a broken and contrite heart. What do we learn quickly on this? What do we learn? There's three things. I want to just grab three things that we learned from David's prayer regarding this sin. One, he prays for mercy. He prays and he repents. That is, he turns back to God. Verse 1 says, have mercy on me according to your, uh, uh, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Three times, have mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
John Piper says that Psalm 51 is a way of laying hold of the mystery of mercy. Now, who is the mystery of mercy he's referring to? Jesus Christ. What else we learned? Number two, he prays for cleansing. Why does he pray for cleansing? Because he's got this stain of sin now because of this misstep, this failure in his life. So he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me, in verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What's hyssop? Hyssop is a, was a branch used by the priest to sprinkle blood. It's, its stiffness allowed them to be able to take it and sprinkle blood with it, and you could sprinkle on the doorpost of the house. But it was also used to cleanse lepers, people that had skin diseases. And one of the other call, uh, uses was when there was a house that had mold in it, some sort of fungus or mold, you could, your priests would come and they would take the stick that had hyssop and they would just just walk around the house, and that was a symbolically, that was a way of cleansing. And so what David is referring to is not so much a physical cleansing, like you're cleaning the house or something like that, but he's saying, purge me, clean me up spiritually. As he's confessing his sin, we do the same thing. 1 John 1 and 9, 1 John 1, 7 and 9, Forget our, forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, and that's the key piece, confessing our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then number three, what we learn is we, we learn that David is praying for renewal. Renewal is important because in order to make this work, David says he has to acknowledge the seriousness of his sin. That's why he says, against you only, God, have I sinned. I can't sleep. This is over and over and over. It's in, it's in my head over and over again. I, it, it's, it's with me. I want to stop right there. Because... I want to I say this to you. The temptation for most of us, a lot of us, is that when we have a failure, to think that we have to hide, we're done. Some kind of way we, we're, we're put on the bottom rung of God's list of desirables. And I would argue with you and say, no, that's not true. That on the contrary, what God has done is provided a way for us to come back to him. And all we have to do, all we have to do to appropriate that that scenario is to draw near to God. I've talked to people over the years of ministry that have had all kinds of stuff in their lives. I've had my own share of stuff. And I can remember my own life on a personal note when, when, when things were going really, really, really bad. When Karen and I were in a season of just marital stuff. And I remember feeling that the only way out was either to bail out of the marriage 
or to come to God and draw near to God, both Karen and I. And I remember I, I spent some time just drawing near, drawing near, drawing near. God, search me, search me, search me, search me. Didn't hear anything from God for a long time. Burdened because I didn't hear anything. But I kept, search me, God, search me. Whatever it is in me that's not right, God, work on me, work on me. And over time, I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but over time, it it happened. Where God reaffirmed his love and his care for both Karen and I. In Hebrews 11, 34, 32 to 34, we get that list of all the faithful people. You know the list, that, that, that list of by faith they did all of this stuff. Well, when you get to verse 32, this is interesting. David is in the list. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Yes. The same David that took Bathsheba still made it to the list of heroes of the faith. I want to give you an opportunity. Some of you, somebody may be sitting here, and I I, I mentioned to uh, Pastor Scott that sometimes we need to take a moment and take some time and give people a chance to just pray. And I want to invite you to come up, Pastor Scott, come up with me and and, uh, just anybody needing to pray right now, you could come up. You don't need to tell me anything. But if you've got something that, that, that's been kind of on this, this, this going around in your head forever, maybe it's something that you did, maybe a decision you made, I don't know what it is. I remember one person I talked to about five, six, seven years ago told me that they had had an abortion. This is the guy said he had talked his girlfriend into having an abortion, and it was their biggest, darkest, deepest secret, and it was killing them because nobody knew about it. And they were Christians. I know someone else who was in a situation where they had committed a horrible robbery. I know someone else who was in a situation that the wife didn't know that they were in this cycle of pornography. And they were struggling several years into the marriage, still locked into that place as a Christian. I don't know what your situation is. But I'm going to invite you to come and let's let's go to the Lord and say, God, we're coming to you. We want to draw near to you. Anybody anybody want to do that this morning? Come on down. Forget about what somebody else might be thinking and believing or whatever. It's, It's between you and God and we're family. This is authentic faith stuff. Anybody's desiring prayer this morning?
great if you guys can come up and start playing. You know, sometimes it's hard. This Christian walk is challenging at times. But we do it together. And we do it with a sense of we can't lose because God has already covered us. God has already given us everything. And he's given us the ability to come to him. Especially when we drop the ball, when we fail. Father, thank you so much. Thank you, oh God. You already know. The secret hidden things you know. And God, I pray that you would simply just do your work on those hearts. That you would remind those individuals that you love them. And you care for them so much. And that God, you are standing with open arms. For them to come to you. God, I pray that you would bother them. Not let them get rest until they enter into the real rest in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for you. We're grateful for you. That you just don't discard us. In Jesus' precious name.